You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. RCMP are trying to determine why someone would torch a parking lot full of emergency vehicles. But before they do, many people in Smithers are already jumping to their own conclusions. As Kamal Karmali explains, it has to do with the town's proximity to the coastal gas link pipeline. A hotel parking lot in Smithers, B.C. turned into an inferno as flames ripped through multiple vehicles early Wednesday morning. Police calling it a targeted attack on emergency service vehicles. Eight vehicles damaged or completely destroyed, including four RCMP cruisers and one B.C. ambulance. A B.C. hydro truck was also damaged. No one injured, but the sleepy town shaken. People are going to be... Uh, feeling all kinds of emotion from disbelief to concern to worry. The RCMP cruisers appear to have their gas tank covers flipped open. At least one of them marked with a CIRG. That's a task force that addresses energy industry incidents. This incident occurring amid growing tensions in the region. There have been tensions in our community over the past couple of years related to the pipeline. TC Energy, which is constructing the coastal gas link pipeline, says the project is more than three quarters complete. None of its vehicles were in the lot that night. But out of an abundance of caution, we have enhanced security measures at our work sites in the area. In mid-February, about 20 people with axes attacked a coastal gas link worksite, damaging heavy equipment and threatening workers. Now, RCMP are investigating who is behind this latest attack, but provincial politicians quick to draw their own conclusions. We already saw the eco-terrorists do something similar to pipeline workers, what was it, over a year ago, and nothing happened. What took place this is absolutely uh, reprehensible and disgraceful. It's criminal activity. Smithers mayor, though, asking for calm. I think it's really important that we let the police do the investigation and not jump to too many conclusions. Investigators now pleading with anyone with any dash cam footage from that night to contact police. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Police in Trail are now confirming the details about a very scary situation outside Kootenai Boundary Regional Hospital on Tuesday. It happened, or pardon me, it involved a shooting near the ambulance station. Jordan Armstrong joins us live in studio with more on this story. And remarkably, Jordan, no one was seriously hurt. That's right, Sophie. This had the potential to be deadly for both paramedics and police. Just before midnight, RCMP were called to the BC Ambulance Station outside Kootenai Boundary Regional Hospital for reports that a man was behaving erratically and trying to break into the ambulance station. Mounties say as officers were talking to the man, he took out a handgun and fired several shots, narrowly missing two police officers and three paramedics. A taser was used on the man, and he was subdued and arrested without further incident. A 39-year-old man from Quebec remains in custody tonight and is due in court a week from today. So far, he's being held on firearms charges, but police say additional charges, including attempted murder, will be recommended. RCMP add they are grateful no one was hurt or killed in this incident, the motive of which remains under investigation, Sophie. All right, thanks for that. Jordan Armstrong reporting live tonight. A warning today from RCMP after a troubling incident in Merritt last night. Police have released these images of a white van that may be connected to an alleged child luring incident. RCMP say two men in the van attempted to lure two young girls into the vehicle at the Petrocan on Nicola Avenue. The van had side windows and a ladder on its roof. 
RCMP say the incident serves as a reminder for parents to speak with children about practicing safety when interacting with strangers. Heartbreaking statements heard in court today from the parents of a toddler who died five years ago at an unlicensed daycare. The devastating impact on the family, part of the submissions at the sentencing hearing for the daycare operator. Grace Key reports. Crown is asking for two years in jail and defense is asking for a one-year conditional sentence, so no time in jail. And today, Susie Yasmin Saad did make a statement in court and she addressed the parents. Hate me though you may, I have a truth to tell you that night. I held your son in my arms, screaming a prayer to God to save him. I tried over and over to breathe life into your son. I begged him to come back. Saad ran the Olive Ranch daycare in East Vancouver. In April, she entered a guilty plea to failing to provide the necessaries of life to nine children, including 16-month-old Michaelin Sani, who was left unattended in an unlicensed, overcrowded daycare. He was found dead with a string of lights around his neck. The Crown saying this is not a case of a good and caring child care provider who just made a mistake. All of this was motivated by greed. She deceived parents by telling them they were not allowed in the daycare, cared for children too young to communicate, and continued to have more children than she was allowed. Defense told the court Saad is deeply remorseful. She entered a guilty plea and has no criminal record, adding she became a caregiver because she couldn't find adequate care for her own son. Defense says jail time would have significant consequences on her three children, too, need special care. On Tuesday, family read out emotional victim impact statements. The mother described all of Mac's favorite things. He liked to make animal noises and his face would beam with pride whenever he learned something new. This is all I know about Mac. This is all I will ever know. I'm still haunted and worried about how he felt in the hours and the moments just before he died. Was he scared? Did he cry and scream? Did he cry for his mommy? The father saying, one of the most damaging effects of Mac dying is that almost six years later, I still worry about him. I have dreams that he's in danger and I can't help him. I catch myself worrying about him walking between cars and getting run over. A sentencing date has been tentatively set for November 21st at 10 a.m. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. The funeral date for Constable Shailen Yang has now been set. The fallen Burnaby RCMP officer will be honored at the Richmond Oval next Wednesday, November 2nd. Yang was killed in the line of duty last week after accompanying a parks worker to serve an eviction notice to a man living in a tent. An outpouring of support has followed, including processions through Vancouver and Burnaby. Police say the public can expect more traffic interruptions around the Richmond Oval next week, and we will have more details about that as the date approaches. The Surrey Police Board will carry on with its plans to transition the city from the RCMP to a municipal police force despite the outcome of the civic election. Today marks the board's first meeting since Surrey Mayor-elect Brenda Locke won the election, promising to stop the transition to a municipal force. Since then, critics have been asking why the Surrey Police Service has continued to plan and spend money despite the election results. The acting chair started the meeting today by congratulating Locke, but making it clear the board intends to forge ahead with its plans. The board believes that SPS is the best public safety decision for the future of Surrey as our vibrant city continues to grow. We are grateful to our entire team for the patience and the perseverance you have shown while we work through this period of the transition of council. We've spent way, way too much. And um, basically, I think that the Surrey Police Service, particularly its chief, um, 
Norman Lipinski is out of control when it comes to spending. He just seems to do what he wants, when he wants, um, not providing answers to simple questions. The police board says it wants to work with Mayor-elect Locke and the new Surrey Council to demonstrate that a municipal service accountable to the city rather than Ottawa is a better choice for Surrey. The Bank of Canada is raising interest rates again to counteract inflation. The central bank warns Canadians are still consuming more than companies can produce, and that's what's driving prices up. As Aaron MacArthur reports, for many Canadians, the pain is being felt right at home. After five years in development, residents at a new building in Port Moody are getting their keys. Oh, it's something that you dream of your whole life, owning your own place, and we're excited to finally be here today. Some of the people moving into 50 Electronic Avenue have a unique arrangement. They were given the option for a rent-to-own scheme. It was designed initially to protect against cost increases. The developer, Kush Panach, says programs like this are just as important now. And I think it highlights the need, the need even more. I think we have to be equally creative, if not more, to try to help people to facilitate this. For months, the Bank of Canada has been using a sledgehammer to try to fight off runaway inflation. Outsized rate hikes since February have pushed the cost of borrowing to highs not seen in a decade. We might have more work to do. The governor of the bank admits paying for homeowners is an unwanted but necessary step right now. We don't want this transition to be more difficult than it has to be. Wednesday, the policy lending rate was increased by 50 basis points to 3.75%. A smaller hike than anticipated, but it is having huge effects on homeowners. Banks are now taking that increase and passing it on to customers. A typical variable rate mortgage now sits at 5.35%. And for people who borrowed money against their home equity, the rate on those loans is now almost 6.5%. The typical payment on a $500,000 loan has gone up by more than $1,000 a month. When the Bank of Canada will probably, hopefully, uh, stop this pain for Canadians is when they see the employment, uh, unemployment numbers go up. Today's announcement is smaller than forecasted, an indication that the Bank of Canada might be loosening its grip but further rate hikes are not off the table. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Warnings are up for communities up and down the coast as an atmospheric river is forecast to sweep the region. Now, these types of fall storms aren't new, but after last year's devastating impact, many people are understandably on edge. As Julie Nolan reports, residents are advised to brace for the possibility of flooding and power outages. We are looking at a rather strong storm to move over the south coast and affect the area. An atmospheric river is about to pelt the BC coast. We'll start to see periods of rain returning this evening. And as we move into Thursday daytime, we are looking at the possibility of moderate to heavy rain for parts of Metro Vancouver. Considerable rain and strong winds predicted for Metro Vancouver. Luckily, forecasters say the next couple of days will be mild compared to the atmospheric river that pummeled the province last year. We all remember that severe flooding causing extensive damage to roadways and infrastructure. They can be very various intensities, so not all of them have that kind of, and most of them don't have that, that punch that we saw during the extreme event last year. BC's north and central coasts also need to brace for what's being called a vigorous frontal system. Forecasters say this next weather system has the potential to create some havoc. Everything from 
road conditions to you know potentially minor flooding in, in, in localized areas around rivers and so you know just that general caution for people bc hydro says recent drought-like conditions are problematic because the storm can easily knock down brittle trees and branches now we have two years of sort of built-up dry soil and an unprecedented number of dead and weakened trees and vegetation that could pose a problem now that storm season is here. Once the winds start, uh, they could come down into our wires and infrastructure. According to BC Hydro, trees and adverse weather make up about half of the power outages in the province. With this just being the start of storm season, forecasters say preparation is key. Julie Nolan, Global News. All right, let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon for a closer look at when this is going to hit and the main concerns. Christy. Sophie, the rain is picking up right now, but really the most intense part will be tomorrow. Here's a look at the system. So the atmospheric river targeted the north and central coast today. That is going to slide down into the south coast tomorrow. So Vancouver Island, you can expect it through the morning hours. Very intense across the west coast in particular. Then through the afternoon hours, maybe even as early as late morning for our region, we'll start to see that rainfall pick up. It will be intense through the afternoon hours. Now we are expecting it to ease late evening, although for those of you in the Fraser Valley, it will likely linger into Friday morning. Biggest concerns really, Sophie, in my opinion, are uh, reduced um, visibility on the roads because of the intense rain and windy conditions, pooling water on the roads, and certainly power outages. The good news is this system is moving fairly quickly, so it's not going to last too long and bring as much rain as what we saw last year. All right, we'll talk to you in a bit. Thanks, Christy. A bold thief on the move. Homeowners horrified by someone calmly walking up to their houses and stealing whatever isn't bolted down. The U-Haul Bandit you've got to see next on the News Hour. A shocking discovery on a BC beach. The mystery of how a humpback whale ended up here. Also tonight, what a way to end the wake surfing season in the Okanagan. That's coming up as well. Right now, though, theft is rampant in all parts of Metro Vancouver, and it seems nothing is safe. In Surrey, a thief used a U-Haul to pilfer from a number of patios recently, and it was all caught on video. Krista Dow shows us. This is the doorbell camera that we have, the security footage of the guy sh um, coming onto our property and taking everything. It all happened in less than two minutes. To start casually picking up one item at a time. Amanda Costa's entire front porch cleared out Monday morning at 5 a.m. The evidence captured on her door camera, a rude awakening to say the least. You feel violated. I just had a newborn two and a half weeks ago. I'm still healing, I'm sleep deprived, I, I wake up in the morning to see my patio furniture gone and it's heartbreaking. And more evidence. Neighbor surveillance video shows the gutsy criminal even backing the U-Haul truck right into her driveway. And the guy had like a list of houses that he was targeting because he, he wasn't driving up and down the streets slowly. He was intentionally looking for house addresses. You can see the U-Haul right there. Unfortunately, Costa wasn't the only target. About three hours prior, video from another neighbor shows a man pull up in a U-Haul truck, also stealing patio furniture. Another neighbor reported his garden hose was stolen too. Same clothing, same M.O. And then you can see him just jump into the back and put it in there and then take off. Surrey RCMP tell Global News it responded to two complaints of patio furniture being stolen in the Clayton Heights neighborhood. They have the videos and are working to ID the suspect.
And I had the two chairs side by side here. Meantime, Costa contemplating what to do next. My older son, who's three and a half, we used to sit outside and wait for my husband to come home. And my, my son would be jumping up and down on the, on the chairs, being excited to see his daddy. I'm going to lose that experience with my son and also with my newborn, because I don't know when I'll be able to replace it. A sense of security shattered and years of family memories stolen in just seconds. Krista Dow, Global News. Premier-designate David Eby visited Government House today to meet with Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the meaning behind today's meeting. Keith, this was quite a historic moment. She formally called on Eby to form government, something mm -hmm. that doesn't happen every day. Indeed, only the second time in almost 25 years where we've got a new premier that has not resulted because of an election. Again, it happened about three times in the 90s, but really not very often since then. So today, again, member of the same party taking over the reins from a predecessor. He arrived at Government House today, accompanied by several new aides, meeting with Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. They met for a little more than an hour, had tea. He said they sampled some delicious pastries, according to him. And I can attest to that, having been to Government House, they have great chefs there. Uh, and then he came out and met with reporters, took questions from a number of us. I asked him about his plan to have legislation in front of the House uh, when he takes his seat in the legislature. Here's his response. People will know that, uh, that uh, certainly my priority areas, the issues of housing and health care and public safety, um, are, uh, are issues that we need to address in a really uh, aggressive and urgent way. Uh, and that's why I'm, uh, I'm trying to work with our team to accelerate and have in place uh, key legislative initiatives to respond to that. It, it's a moving target. You know, we're in session right now. Uh, and, uh, and I'm working with our team to, to try to be in a position to be able to do that. So we still don't have a date when he's going to go back to Government House to get formally sworn in, but we do expect it to occur when the legislature takes a break in the second week of November. Uh, so we anticipate November 8th or 9th, the time when he goes back to Government House for a more formal ceremony, installing him as BC's next premier. And get more of those delectable treats. <laughs> Thanks very much, Keith. Up next, the province protects itself from fraud. We're falling in line with what other provinces have done. Why your next used car purchase might not be the deal you think it is in Consumer Matters next. And during one of the most grueling tests of human endurance, what a Canadian ultramarathoner saw along the trail. Still seeing some pretty significant delays here in Burnaby due to a stalled crane truck eastbound on Canada Way at Burris in the right lane. Traffic is absolutely gridlocked on the approach. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $34 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stall in Burnaby. A major change is coming to the way used vehicles in B.C. are taxed after purchase. And what you paid for it is irrelevant. The NDP government says it will prevent fraud, but critics say it's a tax grab. Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with more. Anne? Thanks, Sophie. This year's budget adjusted the rules on how PST is charged on most vehicles bought in private sales or imported from outside of Canada. That means at the time of registration, the Canadian Black Book is now used to determine the average 
average wholesale value of vehicles by year, make, model, and trim. Right now, the PST rate on most used vehicles or those with a purchase price of under $125,000 is 12%. If the average wholesale value is more than the sale price of the vehicle, it is considered the purchase price for the purpose of calculating the PST. For example, if someone buys a vehicle for $10,000 in a private sale and the average wholesale value of that vehicle is $12,000, the 12% tax would apply to the average wholesale value with ICBC collecting $1,440 in PSD. That's $240 more than it would have received if the tax was calculated on the sale price of $10,000. Buyers who believe a vehicle may be worth less than its black book value due to wear and tear, damage or mechanical defects may have it appraised by a qualified dealer. If the appraised value and the designated sale price are both less than the average wholesale value of the purchase price for PST, it's the higher of the two. We're falling in line with what other provinces have done so that we have uh, a fair uh, model for uh, determining what the, what the price ought to be for used uh, vehicles. How prevalent is fraud in terms of people falsifying vehicle transfer or paperwork to try and get out of paying PST? I mean, that is one of the risks that we've had under the old system, and that's one of the reasons why not only uh, have we made the change, but other provinces as well have made this change. People were already being fleeced when it came to the private sale of, of motor vehicles, having to pay 12% PST. People who are shopping for secondhand vehicles generally don't have lots of extra money laying around. They're trying to save money, and this bureaucrat knows best approach from the province uh, is making saving money even more challenging for BC families at a time when they're paying out-of-control prices at the pumps and supermarkets. Now, the new Car Dealers Association says as a result of the changes, a predetermined value is placed on a used vehicle without factoring in its condition, service and collision, history, mileage and even color. It says its members are concerned this will penalize customers, particularly low-income earners who will end up paying more. Meantime, BC's Finance Ministry says it expects very few vehicles to be sold below the average wholesale price. But if people paid less than the average wholesale value due to the vehicle's condition, they will be able to obtain a vehicle appraisal to lower the tax payable on the purchase. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Good stuff. Okay, thanks very much, Anne. A leading publication places the University of British Columbia at the top when it comes to sustainability. The QS World University Rankings looked at 700 schools and their ability to tackle environmental, social and governance challenges. UBC ranked first in Canada for social impact and second for environmental impact right behind the University of Toronto. In a statement, UBC says it's committed to sustainability and it's still implementing more ways to manage its campus energy, water use and waste reduction. A surprising sight on a small island at the northern end of Vancouver Island. A dead humpback whale has washed ashore. And while that in itself doesn't happen very often, that someone spotted it and reported it is even more unusual. As Kylie Stanton reports, that's giving researchers a rare opportunity. What the heck? Even from inside this vehicle, it's clear something isn't right. Um, was that rock there before? Andrew Pinch is behind the wheel and decides to get a closer look. Quickly turned my vehicle, drove right to the beach. Oh my God. Getting there, he's not quite able to believe his eyes. It was massive. We usually see them alive and it's, 
It was a shock. Pinch runs out and starts snapping photos, immediately calling his contact at the Marine and Education Research Society. The next morning, our team could mobilize and head out to that area. The young female humpback, now identified as BCX1847, or Spike, was located on the north side of Malcolm Island, near the waters she's been known to frequent since the whale was first documented back in 2018. The humpback's body bloated due to gases building up from decay, but the team was able to secure the whale on the beach, ensuring she would not float away. A sad but potentially educational situation. So often dead whales just disappear and so we never get to learn what happened to them. So this really is a rare opportunity for us to learn more. What we're really interested in is finding out the cause of death if we can, uh, you know. <laughs> The more we know about how a whale uh, died or passed away, the more we can do to address that and hopefully prevent future death. The two primary threats to humpback whales are vessel strikes, large or small, and entanglement in fishing gear. And while it's good news the population is seeing huge growth in this region, it's simply a numbers game. The more humpbacks we have, the more interactions uh, with ships and you know fishing equipment and things like that we're gonna have as well. The hope is this incident will lead to more awareness on the water, a silver lining to an otherwise heartbreaking story. The tragedy, people can grow, and, uh, you know, positive change can happen. If we can learn something to save the next ones, great. Kelly Stanton, Global News. Just ahead, the inquiry into Canada's use of the Emergencies Act and what Ontario Premier Doug Ford is doing to avoid testifying. Also ahead, BC signs an historic agreement that will have a lifetime impact on First Nations children. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. A busy but steady commute in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight. There's still some leftover volume eastbound on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside real Canadian superstores and Walmarts throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com. Open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Ontario's Premier is standing firm in his stance not to participate in the public inquiry looking into the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. Doug Ford spoke publicly about that decision as the commission hears from the last Ottawa police officer set to testify. Global's Kyle Benning has the latest. I asked the Premier, will he come clean and commit today to speaking with the commission? Ontario's Premier is not only being asked by federal politicians to participate, but by members across the aisle as well. Doug Ford and former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones were subpoenaed to appear in front of the Public Order Emergency Commission, but the Premier intends to fight the call. This is a federal inquiry into the federal government's decision to use the Federal Emergencies Act. After not attending question period Tuesday, Ford made his case to MPPs as to why he won't participate in the inquiry. He is asking a judge to dismiss the summons under parliamentary privilege. He's claiming that the business, the business of, of Parliament, the business of the legislature won't be, will be impacted if he's required to testify on November 10th. The legislature isn't sitting on November 10th. Last week, the commission heard from outgoing Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, who said the province delayed getting involved in putting an end to the convoy. 
Ford maintains it is a policing matter with Ontario Provincial Police officers attending as well as the province sending hundreds of cabinet documents in addition to testimony from two deputy ministers. On Wednesday, a final Ottawa police officers gave evidence. Superintendents Robert Drummond and Robert Bernier testified regarding the management of their respective teams. Bernier oversaw the Ottawa Police Command Centre and noted how fluid plans were at the time. We were in agreement with the concept of operation and we were in agreement that it was not realistic to actually have a completed, actual nice, with a bow plan by the 15th. It was going to be evolving. While these are the final two Ottawa police officers set to testify, former Chief Peter Slowly will answer questions later this week. Kyle Benning, Global News. The BC government is promising unprecedented changes to the law that will give First Nations jurisdiction over child and family services. As Madagahi reports, both the government and First Nations say it's a long overdue end to racist policies. Nearly seven months after BC became the first province in Canada with a specific action plan surrounding the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, it has moved to implement a key article concerning Indigenous self-determination and decision-making. Our children have an inherent right to know who they are, where they come from, what they belong to. The harms caused by racist structures, beliefs and practices has resulted in a disproportionate number of Indigenous children and youth in care. Say hi again. Hi. Provincial records continue to show a troubling pattern, leading many prominent Indigenous voices to compare BC's child protection services to a modern-day residential school system. Of the 5,015 children and youth currently under provincial care, more than 3,400 are Indigenous. And despite comprising only 10% of the general population, Indigenous children represent 68% of those in care. On Wednesday, the province announced changes to legislation that remove barriers and facilitate nations to exercise jurisdiction over their own child and family services. It is our children. We have that right. The definition of jurisdiction in its simplest form is the ability to make decisions and who best to make the best decisions for children, except for the ones that are the, the family, the extended family, the clans, the nations themselves. Changes also include a new Indigenous Child Welfare Director position in the ministry. The province also saying it would look to strengthen collaboration and enable consent-based decision-making with Indigenous communities, something it perhaps may need work on, according to at least one representative. The provinces process was very rushed and gave leadership very little time to consider the proposed changes. The province must do better in its process of collaborating on legislation. Emadagahi, Global News. Still ahead, surviving one of the world's most grueling races. A Canadian competitor talks about the physical and mental endurance it took to complete it. And in sports with a struggling Canucks GM said when asked about making a coaching change. Well, proof that Halloween is right around the corner, but at the same time, what we're going to show you next makes it a little hard to believe we are nearing the end of October. That's true. Check out this wake surfing T-Rex who goes by the name of Brian, we're told, caught riding on camera 
Riding waves in Asuyas Lake yesterday. Fall has been pretty mild up to the last few days, but still pretty chilly for wakeboarding. The water temperature in Asuyas Lake yesterday was just over 11 degrees. So yes, Brian is a pretty tough T-Rex. Nice form. So they're not extinct? Is that what you're telling me? Well, we don't want to start any fake news. <laughs> that is not, children, if you're watching, that's not a real T-Rex. No, we'll probably see a lot of them on Halloween. I think so. All right, let's bring in Christy Gordon uh, for a closer look at what's to come. And it's a lot of rain, Christy. It is a lot of rain, but really good to give everyone perspective by comparison to what we saw last year, where we had, say, three back-to-back -back atmospheric rivers that were so intense and stalled over the area. We're nowhere near that. But we do have one that we're going to contend with tomorrow, and we have another one potentially on Sunday. But they're dead. they don't look like they're going to stall. So here's a look at the one we're dealing with right now. It is going to slide down the coast, and it's called an atmospheric river because it really is a river in the sky. It's pulling tropical moisture, funneling it like a river right towards the B.C. coast. So these are the areas under a warning. The north coast, central coast, up to 100 millimeters of rain. So that's more than what we're going to see across the south coast. And we're expecting 90 kilometer an hour gusts in through areas like Fraser Canyon, as well as the northern sections of the Coquihalla and the Connector. So if you're driving the mountain passes, make sure you're aware of that. Throughout the day tomorrow, we're expecting incredibly strong winds, so power outages are possible. South coast wind gusts could be up to 70 kilometers an hour. That's in that power outage cray, uh, sort of level, and then 50 millimeters of rain along the North Shore Mountains, but certainly localized areas could see more than that, potentially up to 80. Here's that timeline. It pushes on to Vancouver Island tomorrow morning and shifts into the lower mainland as we head through the late morning afternoon hours. It lingers a little bit longer for those of you in the Fraser Valley and you'll likely see that overnight into your Friday morning. There's your forecast for your uh what day is it tomorrow? Thursday. <laughs> Getting all confused here. Those of you in the interior, the main impact will be winds, not as much rain as what we'll see here across the south coast. So really the target of that rainfall. And you'll see it throughout the afternoon hours become very intense and linger in through the Fraser Valley region. We're expecting breaks of blue sky, though, Friday and potentially on Saturday. That next atmospheric river potentially on Sunday. More details on that in the days to come. And the bright spot is Halloween. Yes, so far it's looking like we could see a mix of sun and cloud with just a very slight chance of showers. We'll refine that as we get closer. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from the Similkameen where you get that beautiful color of grass. Thank you to Barry for sharing that with us. Uh, yeah, stunning shot. Looks like a good road trip. Sure does. Thanks, Christy. All right, Squires here with a look ahead to what's coming up in sports and still hoping for that first win for the Canucks. Yes, well, maybe they'll get it tomorrow or maybe Friday <laughs> or maybe sometime in February. Uh, what does Canucks GM Patrick Alvin think of his team so far? Again, I think we're a talented team, uh, but we need to get this team um, and this group to play together. So does he and Jim Rutherford believe Bruce can get them to play together and play winning hockey? Or is a change coming? He wasn't quite as uh, specific on that question as we would have liked. And later, one marathon is enough for most people, but how about four back-to-back -back and in a jungle? We'll meet some of the Canadian competitors who took on the crazy race. It's not pucks, but puns we like celebrating sometimes here. Well, around here, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we all, love, uh, we all love to try some. So here, 
I will use a very obvious bit of wordplay. The Vancouver Canucks better get cracking in Seattle tomorrow night <laughs> because starting the season winless in eight, thank you, drummer, is not good for anybody, especially a head coach that wasn't hired by the current president and general manager. Not that being left at the starting gate is all Bruce Boudreaux's fault, because it's not. But he could end up paying for it. Today at practice, GM Patrick Alvine answered questions about Boudreaux's situation and the situation of his failing and flailing hockey team. Net for the Canucks, an easy goal for Zingis Gergensons. It's a foul mood at Rogers Arena. Do you think a coaching change would make a difference with the roster and with the injuries that you have right now? Um, I think every every good team is facing uh, adversity, and and uh, it's just if you're if you want to be a good team in this league, you got to have the next man up mentality. And I think uh, the players that have been coming up here have shown that they are capable of playing games. Um, I don't think that's been an issue. Um, I think we need to um, have our kind of the top players to to buy in and be the top players every single day uh, you walk in here to the rink and um, I think that's the difference right now. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of support for his head coach Bruce Boudreaux and not a lot of answers from Canucks general manager Patrick Alvine about the state of his 0 for 7 hockey team. Two weeks into the NHL season and the Canucks are a downright mess. And obviously, it's a, a slow start that nobody likes to see, but uh, there's a lot of things going on as far as injuries and everything. So there's new lineups every day. So, I mean, and, and they're handling it well. I mean, it's it's funny. I don't know who makes up half this stuff, but I mean, uh, when you re when you hear about it, uh, or you come to work and you hear about it, and and but that's a group that gets along well. They're good guys, and uh, uh, the coaching staff gets along well. Everybody's doing. Doing well, we just want to win. But how many wins is this team capable of stringing together? Another couple of weeks of what we've just witnessed, and you can kiss any hope of making the playoffs goodbye. That's the harsh reality of starting slow, regardless how well you finish. Puck was bouncing, now he scores! I'm not worried about anything, I'm just doing my job. So I don't, I, I've been, I've worked without a safety net before, and as I figure as long as I do my job, I'm, I'm going to come to work every day until they tell me not to. We're working uh, very tight together here. We're working close. We're trying to find solutions. Um, you know what? Uh, in the end of the day, we're going to start winning hockey games. That's, that's the bottom line. Well, if there's a silver lining, the Canucks are leading in the Connor Bedard Derby right now. Uh, it's not just uh, losses that are piling up on Vancouver. It's injuries as well. Curtis Lazar is hurt. So the Canucks had to bring Sheldon Dries and Will Lockwood down from Abbey Road to join the varsity team in time for tomorrow's game in Seattle. Yesterday we heard Quinn Hughes went from day to day to week to week, but apparently that's not as scary as it sounds, and he could be back after this week off. Uh, it's not severe. I mean, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, next week that Hughes will be playing. And uh, he was on the ice this morning, feeling a lot better. Uh, I think Besser's going on the ice tomorrow. So, I mean, it's not, you know, long-term injuries that these guys have. Is Brock's a continuation of what held him out in the preseason? Well, um, I'm not here to end up telling you what, what's wrong with him, but, you know, he'll be back on the ice pretty soon. There are strength and conditioning coaches all over the NHL who cannot explain how Phil Kessel is the NHL's Ironman. 990 straight games for a guy who likes Coke instead of water before the game. Once, when he played for the Maple Leafs, refused to be weighed. 
and once on the bench told another player, I'm not playing well tonight because I ate too much cheese before the game. Yet last night he became the Ironman and also scored this beautiful goal, which happened to be the 400th of his career. Phil Kessel is a legend among players and fans. And now he's the Ironman. Uh, we know the dates for next year's Rugby Sevens Tournament at BC Place. It'll be March 3rd to the 5th. This will be the eighth time we have hosted Rugby Sevens, but the first time that both a men's and women's tournament will be there. And uh, they'll need games on Friday because of that. There will be 28 teams, 79 games, and on Sunday, two champions will be crowned. Well, there is only one NFL game this week where both teams playing have a winning record. That's the Giants in Seattle to face the Seahawks. And if you could have bet that in Vegas before the season started, you wouldn't just have enough money to buy a house. You could buy a whole street. You could play Monopoly. Nobody thought this would happen. But both of these teams use running backs as the tip of their spears. Saquon Barkley for the Giants, Kenneth Walker III for Seattle. And Seahawks defensive coach Clint Hurt says defenses who face these types of running teams know the reason that strategy can work. It's, it's tough, you know, just try to stop some of the pass rushes in the league and uh, the exotic pressures and things like that. And the greatest neutralizer is, you know, is to run the ball at people. You can't get a sack on a run play. You can't get an interception on a run play, you know. And those guys wear out during the course of the game. And then it's like, okay, you want to rush the passer in the fourth quarter. We've already bruised you up for the last, you know, 45 minutes. We'll see how you do now. See? <laughs> That's why. Tough to play when you're all bruised up. Yep. All right, thanks very much, Squire. Jungles, volcanoes, and more than 31,000 feet of elevation. What draws runners to the Grand Raid Ultra Marathon? And the Canadian woman who just placed in the top 10. That's next. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, David Eby may be... BC's premier in waiting, but protesters aren't waiting to take their message directly to him. There are two demonstrations scheduled to take place outside his office tomorrow, even though he doesn't take over until next month. Also, we're learning more about a shocking incident outside the hospital in Trail. It turns out the man accused of shooting at police and paramedics last night had been in the care of paramedics prior to the failed attack. We'll tell you why on Global News at 11, Chris. All right, sounds good, Jordan. Thank you. Well, more than a dozen Canadians endured what many, us too, would mm -hmm. take a hard pass on. About four back-to-back -back marathons, also known as an ultra-marathon through the jungle. The grueling Grand Raid of Reunion Island, as it's known, ultra-marathon, is one of the toughest races in the world. And Global's Mike Armstrong finds out why they do it. It is a race with a reputation. At 165 kilometers, with a cumulative climb of 10,000 meters, the Diagonal des Fous is known as one of the toughest ultramarathons in the world. I would say it earns that title. For Canadian sure. Kelsey Hogan made the trek, she says, from an island in the Atlantic Ocean, Newfoundland, to a very remote island in the Indian Ocean. Now, it's literally like running four marathons all at once. There are food and drinks along the way, but other than that, the top racers don't stop. Hogan did take a break at an aid station when her body temperature went too low, but it was a very short break. The medic gave me an emergency blanket, and they said, if you close your eyes for a little bit, that might help too. So I set an alarm for five minutes, and... Uh, that was, that was it. That physical side of the race is just a part of it. It also takes some serious mental strength. 
Hogan prepares for what happens when she gets too tired. She hallucinates, seeing woodland creatures along the trail. So I see a lot of like little animals and fairy tale creatures that usually are um, helping me out and they're pointing me in the right direction and cheering me on, which is a really lovely hallucination to have. For most of the runners, just to finish is a win, about a third don't. Hogan's goal was to make the top 10 for women. She did, placing 10th with a time of 37 hours and one minute. Of course, she did take that five minutes off. Well, Hogan was struck by two things, the support from the public and the camaraderie of the competitors. The winner was an example of that. The French runner who won in 23 hours returned to the finish line a day and a half later and escorted the two men who finished in last place across the line. Mike Armstrong, Global News. Huh. How is he still upright? Barely. Right? Yeah, barely. Oh, dear. Wow. All right, last mm -hmm. word on weather quickly before we go. Christy? Well, I have to say, it kind of feels like heavy rain right now, but it's nothing compared to what we'll see tomorrow. So stay dry, everyone, and expect some power outages. All right, we'll try. Thanks very much. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, all.